the book of Romans is the diamond. And the book, the eighth chapter of Romans is really the, the, the apex on the diamond. And 29 and 30 are the point on top of the apex of the diamond. It doesn't get any better than this. So it's exciting as we open up this passage together. The one verse we're going to look at, the one word, I can just read one word to you and say, uh, for new. But I'll, I will read the whole verse. It's uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30. I'll read together. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, Father, we just pray as we open your word, you would open our heart, Lord. We, we're peering into some things that require extra gray matter, Father, and we ask that you would expand the gray matter of our heads to fully comprehend the, the wonder of our salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The, uh, how many of you grew up as a child asking a lot of questions? You know, we had seven kids. We do still do have seven. But when they were little, they were, uh, why, Daddy, why? You know, that's, that was one of the big questions. Why? And you give an answer, and why? And you talk about the moon, you know, and there's a face in the moon, but why does the moon have a face? And so you go into all the questions. And those were good as part of childhood growing up because what it indicated is a desire to want to know what's around you. And then somewhere along the line, we ended up uh, losing that sense of uh, looking and peering into that which we don't know. And so because of that, we stopped asking questions. But as Christians, what I want us to see this morning is this, the importance of continuing to ask questions if you're going to know your God and live a life that's pleasing to Him. The, uh, remember in 828, uh, we just finished that up last time, and uh, we couldn't even get through that, that verse without asking ourselves some questions. We, uh, we asked several questions. For example, we came to uh, all things work together for good. What's the all things question? We need to know that if we're going to understand Romans 8.28. Work together for good. What is the good? And as we saw that the good is, is that which is going to be expanded for us down in verses 29 and 30. And so I believe Paul realized that we'd be asking questions, and if not, he realized we should be asking questions, so that when we came to the end of 828, and before we started verse 29, he, he thought, I believe, that we would be asking a question. And he prepared that, because he, what he did is he prepared by giving us the answer to the question in verse 29. And here's the question, Why? We should read Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So we come to the end, and then we ask ourselves, why? Why is it that every event in my life, good, bad, and ugly, God is orchestrating it and synchronizing it in such a way that it will work for my eternal good? Why? Why should I have great confidence and assurance that that's going to be true in my life, and uh, or to personalize it, why is it that if you're here as a Christian today, as one who loves God, who's been called according to His purpose, why is it that you can be absolutely sure as a believer that you will be brought to God to be Christ-like and at the very end enter into His eternal glory? How can you be confident in that promise? And why is this promise such a certainty? And that's why when he comes to verse 29, see the first word there? It's an answer to that question, why? For, literally, man, I don't know if any of your translations say because. Anybody have a because? Literally, it's because. And here's the answer. 
And what Paul does is he begins to introduce the, the answer to the question, why? Why do all things work together for good to those who are in Christ, those who love Him? Uh, because, and Paul takes us back to, in the short answer, that is the sovereignty of God. Because of the sovereignty of God, you can have confidence. Because of the sovereignty of God, He will answer your, your question, why? And He'll fulfill His promise to you in verse 28. Because it's only a sovereign God who can make a promise like that and keep it. Because it's only a, 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 it's only a gospel that is sovereign that He can make that promise and keep it as well. Only a, a mighty, all-powerful God who, who is actively involved, not only in, in choosing but electing, and, but also in, the, in, in, in carrying out His plan of redemption, only that God can be trusted when He makes a promise that all things are going to work together for good. A promise to sanctify and to glorify His people. A promise that can give you confidence and assurance of your ultimate destiny and your, and your salvation. So hopefully you can see that, and this will come out in this passage here. Uh, so we have a sovereign God, a powerful God, a God who is actually saving people. Can you have confidence in that God? Absolutely. If He promises it, it's going to happen. But here, here's the thing. If you have a weak, syrupy God and a weak, syrupy salvation that's all dependent on man and what man does, can God then come in and make a promise of absolute certainty that He's going to glorify you? I mean, what confidence can there be in that? And that's why this, this particular verse is so important. How can a weak God leave your salvation uh, to a fickle, a fickle, easily persuaded man? Such a weak foundation leaves you to, in yourself to face the adversities of life, well, the ones we saw in verse 28, when, when all the things begin to happen, you don't leave it with confidence, you leave with, with with doubts and confusion. So we come in, in fact, if you have a weak syrupy God and a weak syrupy salvation, you're going to be hanging on by your fingers to your salvation until the day you die. Do you realize that? If it's all up to you when you got saved, then this is how you are right now. Your little bony fingers are up on the ledge and you're trying to hold yourself up and you think you're going to somehow be able to do that until the day that Jesus Christ returns or the day that you die and you won't lose your salvation. And as soon as you say that, you fall. I think it's John MacArthur that said over and over again many times, he says that, he said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And I think that's true. If you could, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If you're left to your own hope and your own weakness and your own, your own frailty, you'll lose it every time you can have no confidence. In verses 29 to 30, look carefully at that passage. God unfolds for us the broad span of His salvation through a spectrum of time and eternity. I mean, he, He's got the big brush out, and He, he sees, He's giving the, the brush stroke of salvation I don't like the word uh, eternity past, but I don't know of any other word that can, can, communicates anything better. But in eternity past, before Genesis 1-1, God was actively involved in, in your salvation, Christians, he, 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 back then. And then time and space came in. And then we're, now we're here we are at, uh, we're at uh, uh, Genesis 1-1, and He creates, and then you're born, and then, and then he, He's continuing through time time and space. You see it all here in 20, 29 and 30. And then the brush goes right off into eternity future without a break, without, without any break in what He's doing in your life. So in this sermon, what I'd like to do today is to take you back to eternity past. Before there was a heaven and an earth, before you were born, before there was old faithful, before there was an earth, before there was a moon, before there were stars, when there was God a triune God, and uh, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the internal counsel of, of, of their own will, working out all their purposes and plans as, as the only God. And back then, He was a God that foreknew. We see that at the beginning of verse 29. 
There we discover the, the triune God in all, of his in all of His glory, sovereignly choosing a people whom not only that He would create, but that He would eventually save. Back then, before any of us were ever born, He elected a people to whom He could make an unwavering promise like Romans 8.28 to you and say, I'm going to work all things out for your spiritual good and glory for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose. And you can bank on that promise because it's based on the sovereign and the powerful God Himself. In verses 29 to 30, we find five majestic pillars that hold up this promise that God's working all things out together for good. These pillars are strong. These pillars uh, are unshakable. These pillars are all acts of God, not man. We have foreknowledge. We have predestined. We have called. We have justified. We have glorified. And, and, and these pillars hold up His promise to work all things together for your good. Now, I've entitled this sermon, The Five Golden Links of Salvation. I borrowed that from uh, John Arrowsmith, a Puritan, who back in the 17th century wrote a sermon, and in, in the sermon he calls this God's golden chain of salvation. So I didn't want to copy his, so I, I call it the golden links of salvation. But that's okay. If you, if you go on Sermon Audio and you go through Romans 8.29, and you see all the sermons, there's a lot of sermons preached. Many of the sermons today are just called God's golden chain of salvation. That's, it's part, pretty hard to, to improve upon that. Theologians like to call the five links in this chain a condensed form of the ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation in the life of a sinner. The order of God working His salvation out in your life as a believer and as you, as you look, in fact, I, you see the golden chain. Uh, it's even printed in color this, this week, but uh, in your bulletin. But you can see each one of those links talks about one of the five, one of the five great things that God has done in, in saving us. And uh, these links begin, and they're all linked together, and they end up, they begin in time and eternity, and they end in eternity future. And it begins with the foreknowledge of God. And it ends in the glorification, our glorification. I want you to know several things about these links. This is a tough chain. This chain can't be broken. If you, if you enter in on the first link of the chain you see in your bulletin, you're going to make it all the way to the last link. There, there, there's no links to break away and are lost. So if you begin with foreknowledge, you're going to end up where? You're going to be glorified. And, and, and there's no breaking of the links. Begins with etern in eternity past with foreknowledge. And also in eternity past, the second one is predestination. And so, if you are foreknown, you're going to be what? Second link, predestined. And if you're predestined, you go to the third link. What's going to happen? You're going to be called. And the next link, if you're called, you're going to be what? Justified. And if you're justified, you will be glorified. We're going to see this chain spread out for us over the next couple of weeks. I want to begin today by looking at just the first link, foreknew. Of all the five links of this chain of salvation, it might not seem like the most glorious to you, but I think it's the most important. Because if you're off on the first link, you're going to be off maybe for eternity, in the wrong direction. You're going to be off on the gospel. You're going to be off on God. You're going to be off on worship. You're going to be off on missions. You're going to be off on how I live my Christian life. It's all summed up in a right understanding of the word foreknew. And what does Paul mean when he says, those whom he foreknew? Now, there's two broad views of this, a couple shades of... Uh, subviews, but two broad views of this. And I want to look at both of them because one's correct and one's wrong. One leads down to a correct understanding of the gospel 
the way God deals with His people, how we should approach Him in worship, and the other leads you into error. It's that black and white for me. So the first view is this, and this is a pretty common evangelical view you might hear today. This is one that leads you down the correct understanding of the gospel uh, and, and a way of, of worshiping Him, and it can lead you to error. First, this is held by those who embrace free will. So we're going to be talking more about free will as we go through uh, Romans 8 and Romans 9. But the free will being dis- defined as that man being able to, at any time, choose or reject God to their own salvation uh, w- 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 without any help from God. But here's the problem. What is the second link in this chain? Do you see it? It's predestination. It's God choosing before the foundation of the world. Those are going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the problem and here's the question. If you go to the first link, which is foreknew, how do you have free will and how do you have man choosing, if that's what the first link says, and then you go right to the next link, it has to be predestination. How are you going to reconcile those two? How can you be chosen by God, but, but first you chose God, or God could see that He chose you before the foundations of the world? Well, typically what happens is this, and um, I believe there are people who, believers in Christ, who struggle with the doctrine of predestination. Maybe you're one of them that's joining us today. And free will is just something you're going to die for. This is, this is very, very important to you. And here's my challenge to you from Scripture. I think it's very important that if we hold strongly to something like a doctrinal stance like free will, or we hold to a strong doctrinal stance like, like God is not sovereign in the area of salvation, then I think we have to be intellectually honest enough as believers not to read into a passage to force it to say what we want it to say so that it ends up with the result we want it to end up with. Instead, what we really need to do is we need to be honest enough to come to the Bible, the Word of God, the inspiration of the Bible, and let it interpret itself. And let the chips fall where they may. And, and let our hearts adjust to wherever those chips might, might fall. So the first view is this. This is held by those who hold a free will or to, who reject the doctrine of sovereign election. We already saw the first problem is that the second, the second chain is that of predestination. Those whom He foreknew, those whom He, who's the He? God the Father, right? This, uh, foreknew. What does he mean by foreknew? Paul, what do you mean by foreknew? And then he goes on, he predestined. Well, Paul is describing here uh, God before creation. So we're, we're back in eternity past. This is, the, the earth has not been created. The universe does not exist. It's just God in eternity past. And back then can't say back then, but you can say back in eternity past, you can somehow say it and understand it from the perspective that God was involved in salvation. And He began to foreknow. foreknow. He foreknew a people. And is it true that God is omniscient? That He knows all things? Is it true that God knows everything? Past? Present? Future? Yes, He knows it all. I know Isaiah 46 says, I am, verse 10, I am, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet come, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God is omniscient. He knows the past, the future, anything that's going to come, and uh, all the things that are going to be done, He knows them. So we know that, we believe that. So he says here, those, that is Christians, whom he, God the Father, foreknew. Now the view goes like this. I know you've heard it expressed before. This is a picture of God picking up his spiritual binoculars and putting them up to his eyes. And he's looking and staring off into eternity, well, into actually time and space, into the future. He's back in eternity past. Even though he hasn't created uh, Tim Stewart yet, he, he's focusing in. 
2021, 2022, it's Tim, Tim Stewart. And he's seen. He's seen because he knows all things. I wonder if Tim is going to believe in me one day and trust in my son Jesus. And so he focuses in, he sees it with his omniscient eyes, and he says, yes, Tim's going to believe. And so therefore, when we come to the second chain, he says, I, therefore, predestinate Tim. Based on what he did, based on his faith, based on that I can see what he's going to do, I'm going to choose him now. I'm going to elect him. Now, as clever as this argument might sound as far as resolving the question of how do we reconcile uh, the first chain with the, the, set, the first uh, link with the second link, how do we reconcile foreknowledge with predestination? The problem is it does not hold up under Scripture. It does not hold up under Scripture. It's not supported by the Word of God. And so if, I know if this has been a view you, you maybe hold to right now or you have, and, and uh, just I, I pray that you just be patient and kind with, with me as we go through this. And, and, and behold, and let's see together what the Word of God does say. You see, whenever we come to a, a passage that we have a preconceived notion what it means, and we all do this, every one of us does this, then we come to a passage that seems to maybe rub a little bit differently as far as the, the preconceived theology that we have in our head. What do we want to do? We want to twist the verse to make it conform to what we believe is our preconceived notion of what Scripture teaches. Our theology has to grow out of the Word of God, not out of our preconceived notions of what the Word of God says. More specific, if you do not like this, a God who's sovereign, if you don't like a God who chooses people before the foundation of the world, if you do not like a God who, who is, uh, has a people because of the fall who are in bondage to sin, and sin has affected every part of their being, including their what? Their, their, their will. Would you be patient enough to go through the Scriptures with me and see what the Word of God does say? Because we want a theology of truth, right? I mean, every one of us, I believe in this room, we want a theology of truth. So let me give you this morning five reasons, five reasons to reject the view that God is looking down the tunnel of time into the future to see who believes and then chooses the people who He sees are going to believe in the future. The first one is, and this really shoots it right down, the first one is, none can believe. So He's looking down the tunnel of time and He's going to see who's going to believe. Well, he's going to spend eternity looking down the tunnel of time seeing who's going to believe because none can believe. We've seen that as we've been going through the book of Romans. If God before the world created was looking down the tunnel of time, he looks in the 21st century, and uh, if he's just waiting to see who in their free will is going to believe in him, guess what's going to happen? He's not going to see anyone trusting in Christ. We've seen clearly that man is under the bondage of sin. Uh, we, we went through Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, that, that verse right there is enough to rest our case. There's none that's seeking after God. There's none that understands the gospel. John 6, 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me. This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless what? It be granted to him by the Father. So, I mean, anyone with their free will is, ah, I'm ready to... No one can come to me unless it first be granted to that person to come by the Father. No one can come to me but if God calls him. And so when does calling come into this chain? Do you see how far down the line it is? I mean, you've got uh, foreknowledge, you've got predestination, you've got then what? Calling. So it's down, the, it's down the road a ways as far as God's order of salvation. So if left to ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Marvel not that you must be born again, Paul, uh, God told, our Lord told uh, Nicodemus. 
Unless there's a new birth, unless God brings spiritual life, no one would believe in Christ. And then even there we see the wind blows wherever it wants, the Spirit goes and, oh, save someone over here, save someone there, save someone there. And so the first, the first reason or argument against this view is that, that there really is no one is going to believe. Secondly, and if anyone does believe, the second argument is this faith is a gift of God. If anyone does operate in the arena of faith, trusting in Christ, that faith is a gift of God. It's not, it didn't come out of self-will. Now, this view argues that God sees whether people will exercise faith or not. And then they, God then decides to choose them. You can argue that God sees whether people will exercise their free will and then choose those who believe. But here's the problem. The Bible teaches that faith does not come by way of free will. As we've already seen, it comes by way of a gift of God. He must give that, that faith to us to be saved. You say, well, Don, does the Bible teach that? Yes, Ephesians 2.8, well-known verse. For by grace have you been what? Saved. Through faith. The question, where does the faith come from? This is not of yourselves. It's not of your own doing, he says. It's a gift of God. So your faith is a gift of God. John 3, 7, again, marvel not to Nicodemus. He says that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. That's the Spirit of God doing His saving work in the hearts of men. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see God doing the one that's doing, bringing the life. And then Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you, there's the word, been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And so this is again, God grants to you, gives to you uh, for your sake that you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only faith that God can foresee is a faith that God has sovereignly bestowed upon sinners in order that salvation doesn't come until you're finally justified. And by the way, notice in the chain. So it begins with foreknowledge, right, of God. What's the second chain or link? The second link is then He chooses, predestination. Next link, He calls. Next link, He justifies. How are you justified? By faith. When, when does the faith come into the chain? Not so, what, three, four, down, four down, I think, fourth link is... is the link of faith, being justified by faith. And then also, you know, the question is, how can you choose that which somebody is, what someone's already done? What kind of a choice is that of God? How is it that God can choose a person who's already chosen Him? What kind of a choice is that for God? He's ratifying, but it's not a choice. It's not an election. It's not a choice. So this takes us to the third argument against this view is, to know in advance defeats the second link in the chain that God predestines. So if, 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 if to know in advance that people are going to believe in, 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 in Christ, if that's your view, it's going to defeat the second cause, the second act of God, which is predestination. How can you choose a people if you're waiting for them to first choose you? Uh, two weeks ago or more was the primary election, Right? And uh, we all would have liked to have had these binoculars and 30 days before the election to put them up to our eyes and, and to look into the future and see who's going to win. Who's going to win for governor? Who's going to win for the House of Representatives? Who's going to win for the, uh, for the uh, local offices and county, county offices? Well, let's say you had such, such glasses. And let's say you could look into them 30 days before the election and see, oh, Hageman. I wonder who Hageman is. This is God. He, of course he knows who Hageman is. But anyway, Hageman. Oh, she's going to win by 30%. Therefore, I choose Hageman. What kind of a choice is that? What does that do to God's sovereign choice? 
and his, his ability to, to, to him be the one who, who elects and chooses. You're, what happens is God's left to be a God who only ratifies your decision. It really takes him off the, off the throne and puts, him, puts you back on the throne in that area. Fourthly, God never looked into the future and learned anything. Now, this is a big one. If you hold to the view that you can look down the tunnel of time and see what man's going to do, believe or not believe, and then choose the ones who believe, then you now have created a God who is uh, weak. You've created a God who has to learn something before He does something. I mean, it really goes to the very the knowledge of God and is all being all-knowing. Because if He has to wait and see what you're going to do before He chooses you, then all of a sudden uh, what, what happens is that He ends up becoming that weak God who reacts to what His creation does. Or that weak God that's uh, just learning, learning new things. I don't know how it's all going to end up. But I'm going to look into the future and I'm going to see. I'm going to learn that, oh, Tim Stewart's going to trust in me. I'm going to choose him. That's not our God. That, that's, a, that's a God of your imagination. In fact, that, that, that's a heretical view of God. It's so weak that he has to learn. It's so weak that he's dependent upon you to see what you're going to do before he decides what he's going to do. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's sitting on his throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. And he's not dependent upon any of us to make any decree that he chooses to make or he would no longer be God. So we don't want to be reading into this. Uh, rather, it's saying uh, everything about God. God foreknows. God predestinates. God who calls, God who justifies, God who glorifies. So we have to see that it's God who's doing every step, every one of these particular steps or every one of these uh, links in the chain, not man. But I say the strongest argument for the last, and that's the fifth one here, and that is the word foreknow does not mean that he was able to somehow uh, just know in advance what you're going to do. It's not that kind of foreknowledge. Rather, it, it, it's an intimate love for His people, an intimate choosing. Let's go to the grammar. Prognosco. It can mean to know. It can mean. There's a few verses where it can mean to know what's going to happen ahead of time. But that's not the predominant understanding throughout the whole Bible of the idea of prognosco. Paul writes whom he, fore, he foreknew. He doesn't write what he saw that people would do. He foreknew them. So whatever this is, he's acting and foreknowing them, not believing or seeing what these people are going to do. Now, I could give you two proof texts, and that should be enough. But I know that some of you are struggling with this area, and this might be an area you're just not right, real strong or sure on. So I'm going to go overboard. I'm not going to stop at two verses to read you. I'm going to read a whole string of verses. I'm going to shoot them at you like a, like a machine gun. And I hope that the Word of God would be sufficient in driving it into your heart to see that this foreknow is, is, is much more glorious, much more majestic than just looking down the tunnel of time and seeing what you're going to do and therefore... God choosing you based on that. Um, let's, go back to, let's go back to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife. Okay? And she conceived a son. Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Okay, let's look at the word no here. Here we got. What's the word no mean? God knew Adam. Well, of course he knew Adam. If you took the first view, you'd say, yeah, he knew that Adam, he made him. He knew where he lived. He knew what he did. He knew what he was wearing today. Maybe not. Uh, he, he knew Adam. He knew everything about Adam. But is that what this verse is saying? Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. What kind of a knowledge is that? That's an intimate, loving knowledge between a husband and a wife 
who intimately come together in such a way in the bond of marriage and give forth a child. That's what it meant for Adam to know Eve. Genesis 18:19 regarding Abraham. For I have chosen, it says in the ESV. Now, it's, some of your translations will say, I knew. It's the same word. I have chosen, I have known him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so here we see the God the Father speaking that I have known, I have chosen Abraham. I've had an intimate relationship with him. And he became the father of faith. Hosea 13.4, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. And so I didn't know about you, and I didn't know where, you know, it's not like I knew where you were and what you were doing. What I knew is I knew you. I chose you. I loved you. You were the objects of my affection of all the people of the world. Amos 3.1, hear the word of the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the world. Again, not knowing about them, but he knew them intimately, had a relationship with them. Matthew 7.23 is a strong one in the New Testament. It's one I'm sure many of you know. And then, I will declare to them, this is Christ speaking, now we're on judgment day, we're standing before the throne of God, and God's about to make a pronouncement on my eternal destiny. And this is what comes out of the lips of our Lord. He says, and, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What does the knowledge mean there? He never knew these people were ser- trying to serve him in a false way, trying to do miracles on their own. No, I never knew you. I never entered into a, an intimate relationship with you. You weren't mine. You weren't part of the called, part, part of those who, who, who were mine. You never were. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so here Paul's crying out to God for Israel, and, and, he's, and he's reminded that uh, Benjamin, tribe of God has called, not rejected His people, whom He foreknew, whom He foreloved. He was fore intimate with in advance. 1 Corinthians 8.3, if one loves God, one is known by God. That's it. That's short. If one loves God, one is known by God. Galatians 4.8, formerly when... When you did not know God, you were in bondage to, to beings that by nature are not God. But now that you have known God, you are rather being known by God. How can you turn back against the weak and the beggarly and the elemental spirits? And finally, 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this soul, the Lord knows them that are His. He doesn't know about them. He doesn't know, well, oh yeah, they believed in me on January 1st, whatever. It's not that at all. He knows them intimately. He has a relationship with them. And everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So I believe this is the best understanding for, for foreknew. You know, you got the pro in front of it before. Those whom God foreloved, those whom God had affection on beforehand, even before they were created. He had an intimate relationship with them even before they came into being. And by the way, this is consistent with all the rest of the links in the chain. It is God who foreloved. It is God who predestines. It is God who calls. And it's God who just... who. Uh, who justifies, and finally will be God who glorifies. You see, the foresight of faith 
doesn't really fit the pattern of all the other links. I mean, there, there's something coming in. It's God who foresaw that they would believe rather than God who foreknew, foreknew. And, of course, then when, I'm sure a familiar verse to a lot of you is Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to him from afar away, and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's it right there. Now, this is it. I have loved you with an everlasting love before the foundations of the world. I loved you. You were the object of my affection. Of all the, all the other people in the world, I loved you in a very particular way. So foreknowledge means in eternity past, before Genesis 1-1, God made a choice to love a people who would be His elect. He put His redeeming grace upon them. He, he, he marked them off. He, he loved them. He, he, he foreknew them. Be, they would be the object of His saving grace. I mean, we're going to have to deal with a passage coming up in a few weeks, so, you know, get ready. This is hard. Wait till we get to 9.13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Somehow we've got to work that into this passage. I mean, these are twins, right? Raised in the same house. These are twins that uh, probably were raised the same, disciplined the same, taught the same. And yet one was the object of God's love, and I, I believe that's His forelove, his, uh, his electing love, and the other wasn't. And the choice was not in their hands. Well, it wasn't like the, all of a sudden that uh, Esau just didn't get it. No, he, he didn't receive the, the, the love of, of the eternal Father. He says, the twins, uh, one was saved, one was not. And it was based on the, the, the actions of God. So we can see why we need to rightly divide the Word of God on this word foreknew, because it's going to send you down this way or it's going to send you down that way. This is one of those pivotal terms. Either you're going to go off in the area of free will where you're going to go off in the area of, of a sovereign God who you can trust in and have assurance in and who's going to complete the work that has begun in you. By the way, just a, a, just a note, you know, if you cross the Atlantic and you go over to Europe and you see, you go to any of the big cities, you know, you got the big, the big church right in the middle of the city. They're still there. They go back to the Reformation, a lot of them, the Puritans. If you look back at history, when the church was the strongest, when the church was the most vital, that, that was a day when the church embraced a sovereign God in the area of salvation. And then as you see the church eroding away on the gospel, eroding away on the issue of the sovereignty of God, and start stressing more and more the expense of the free will of man, what happens to the church historically? It goes in decline. The great missionary movements, 1700s, that really took the gospel around the world. Where did, the, where, where did that come from? It wasn't an ask Jesus into your heart, I got a free will kind of a gospel. These were men that loved the sovereignty of God. These are men that, that understood the doctrine of election. And, and they, that stirred their heart and they went out and preached it with power and they had an impact around the world. I mean, you begin to see in our own country where it begins to erode from, from, from where you had sound gospel doctrine, and then you see a, the compromise coming in, you begin to see the elevation of, of the will of man over, over the sovereignty of God, and then you see the, the worship changes, the evangelism changes, and it gets to the point where you, the, you know of churches today where there is no gospel left at all, they're totally apostate, and, and, and basically filled with many who don't even believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important. It affects every area of our Christian life. If you see foreknowledge as a weak God, you're going to have a weak salvation. If you see a gospel centered around you rather than around the sovereign God, you have no confidence or hope in your salvation. And herein is the foundation of God that God promises to do eternal good no matter what happens in your life. I mean, think about it. All the things that come in, and all of a sudden you're shaken, you know. You're, all things are working together for good, yes. But if it's up to you, you're lost. 
But if it's up to a foundation of God who powerfully chose you, He will keep that promise no matter how, how, how shaky your life might be and all the events that come into it. We can't miss this truth, brethren. This is, this is important. Uh, if we're off here, that's why I want to spend a little time. If we're off here, we're off on the gospel. If we're off here, souls are at stake. If we're off here, our missions are going to be off. And we're, we're, we're in the middle of worshiping collectively the Lord Jesus Christ today. And, and, and if we're off today in this area of, of worship, then, then, then our, our worship will be off. If your God is weak, sentimental, syrupy, what kind of songs are you going to sing? Think about it. What's your worship going to look like if your God is weak and syrupy? It's going to be silly little ditties. And, and, and is that what we see today? Why? Because of the gospel. Because of who God is. We're going to see that today that one of the grand attributes of God is His sovereignty. And if we can't lift our voice up in praise and adoration to who God is as the sovereign, the one who elects people to eternal uh, glory, then we've got these little silly ditties going on. Repetition and meaningless, trite. We want to sing to a God who rules. And we want to sing to a God who reigns. You know, early in the ministry of Trinity Bible Church over in Powell, uh, we came to this, this knowledge, I think, uh, as we began to... We had a hymn book that was donated to us as a church plant in Powell, and it came out of the revivalistic movement of the early uh, century, turn of the last century. And... Uh, so as we began to see the sovereignty of God and the wonder of God, the doctrine of election, we began to look for hymns. So we opened up the hymn book, and there, there were none. There was none. And we were convicted by it, and we had to decide our, that we need to change our hymn book. We need to pick out songs and sing songs that elevate God as a, an all-powerful, sovereign God, not, at least not all the time. I mean, a lot of our songs should have that focus. And so we looked around and we searched for a hymn book. We came up, we selected what was called the Trinity Hymnal at the time. And uh, I remember preaching this sermon, uh, not this sermon, but preaching a sermon where I said, okay, church, we're going to change our hymn book. Now, this is like saying, you know, we're going to change the name of the church or we're going to do something that people are going, ah, we're going to divide the congregation on changing a hymnal. And I, I remember opening up the sermon. I said, do me a favor pull out the hymnal in front of you, and they did. Now take your Bible in the next hand, and they did. I says, put your Bible on top of the hymnal. And are you willing to let our hymnal submit to the authority of God's Word? And if it doesn't line up, let's get rid of the hymn book. And we did. And it actually didn't cause much of a ripple at all in the church. But, uh, boy, you go back, some of those big, glorious hymns are strong, they're powerful, they're wonderful, they elevate a God who is sovereign and all-powerful. And by the way, this is probably one of the most humbling of Bible truths, the doctrine of God's sovereign election. There's those who will accuse us uh, who believe this doctrine and say, oh, you're proud. You think you're the chosen and no one else is. No, it's not. It's just the opposite. It's realizing there's nothing good in me at all. There's nothing that I can bring to God at all myself. Uh, I'm totally dependent on a God who intimately loved me before the foundation of the world without me doing anything to court Him. And if I love Him at all, it's only because He loved me first. It's the most humbling, I believe, of doctrines if we properly understand it. Now, if you're here today and you're saying, you're talking about God foreknowing people before the foundation of the world. You're talking about a God who predestines, we're going to see next time, people before the foundation of the world to become Christians. What about me if I'm not a Christian? How do I know if I'm one of the elect or not? If it's not me believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just share this with you. What happens is that when God saves a person, He'll do this every time. When God saves a person, 
He brings the Spirit of God into the heart to cause a person to see what they can't normally see and to believe what they can't normally believe. So the Spirit of God comes. It's called the new birth. And He opens up eyes. And those of you who are Christians, you know this. You've experienced this. This happened to you. He opens up eyes and you can see things spiritually that you never saw before. He's doing a work of regeneration in your heart. And you hear about the cross, and you hear about a Savior that died on the cross, was nailed to the cross. He died for the sins of all of His people, and, 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 and He promises everlasting life and forgiveness and His righteousness to all who will come to Him. And all of a sudden you hear that, and it comes alive to you. In fact, it becomes compelling to you. It's so compelling that when you get to the third link, you're going to hear the call, and you're going to come. And you're going to believe and trust and be justified. And that's why I say don't worry about, you know, who's called, who is, and who God loves. That's not the issue. The issue is simply this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's simple. Repent of your sins, turn from your wicked ways, and look to Christ who died on the cross and trust what He did on the cross, not what you do yourself, because you can never do anything to help yourself. But look what He did. He took the rap on, on your behalf and believe that and trust in that and receive that. And guess what? You'll be saved. You'll be one of His. And that's where I point you is to the cross and I point you to Christ to flee from yourself and to flee to Him. Believe in me and turn away from your sins. That's the first link. We'll get to the second link and maybe a few more next, next time. But let's uh, close in a word of prayer. You know, I'm going to ask us at this time to bow your head and to spend a few moments in quiet, silent meditation on the word that was preached today. And let it percolate into your heart. And perhaps even God's calling a response in your heart. But just, just quietly meditate on the word before we sing to him.